Welcome to the podcast of Eden Worship Center. We believe that God has perfectly revealed Himself through Scripture alone, and that salvation comes by grace alone, from faith alone in Christ alone, and that everything is for the glory of God alone. So as we study God's unchanging, inerrant Word together, ask God to open your eyes, to open your eyes to see yourself and your own sin clearly. Open your eyes to see Jesus clearly, and pray that God would give you the grace to repent, to turn from your sin, and the faith to trust in Christ alone for your salvation. If you'd like more information, go to our website at edenworshipcenter.co. I got Genesis chapter 40, verses 1 through 8. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in in custody. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? And they said to him, We have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you that we can just freely come in here and worship you and study and um, receive it uh, with no threat of persecution. Um, I lift up Pastor Matt to you, or Harold, whoever's preaching. I don't remember who's preaching. Um, as you would give them the words to say, that you would be honored and glorified, um, that your name would be lifted up most of all. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you can be seated. Well, as we continue our study verse by verse through the book of Genesis, we've got a lot of territory we're going to cover this morning, Genesis 40 and 41. So we're going to read, keep your Bibles open, we're going to read a lot of Scripture together and comment as we go along. Uh, We've gotten here, and looking through the book of Genesis, we've seen the Creator God speak the world into existence out of nothing. Placing people, male and female, Adam and Eve, in his perfect creation. But we've also seen sin come into the world. And with it, bring fear and sickness and death. And yet, we find right from the beginning God's promise of a coming Savior. We've seen God uh, tracking through the story of this family, calling a family out of all the families of the earth to himself and for himself. And today we're going to see the beginning of that family, the descendants of Abraham, moving towards Egypt for survival. Now, a lot of times when we think about Egypt, we think Egypt as being some symbolic thing of evil, Versus the promised land, only that's not the case here in this story. This is God's hand at work to save them. Even though we, looking back, know what they did not know, and that is by going to Egypt, there's also going to come with it 400 years of slavery and bondage. We're going to see in just a couple weeks, 70 people from this family enter Egypt. But 400 years later, 2 million people will leave as a nation. They're going to enter as a family, but God is going to fulfill his promise to raise up a nation. That promise that he gave to Abram back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2. But it comes in a very unexpected way. Friends, isn't that what we have seen in our life? Our God is faithful. Our God keeps his promises, but it often happens in an unexpected way. What do we do when we live in the tension of knowing that God is good, that knowing he is working all things together for good, but our life doesn't really make sense that we see around us right now? And my encouragement to you this morning is we trust God and we wait in hope. God has 
made promises to this young boy, Joseph, that we've been following. Promises that came in the way of dreams. He didn't ask for them. God just spoke to him and said, here's what I have for you. But this young boy, every step of that has seen a mixture of blessing and heartache. Blessing and betrayal. Betrayal by his family, by his master's wife. And now he sits in prison. We're told repeatedly in this text that Jonas read for us, it's the prison of the king. It's not just any prison. He's not in Leavenworth. He's in the prison of the king of Egypt. He's in Pharaoh's prison. And he's sitting there with his prison pals. Uh, Guys that he didn't know previous to this, but God has brought him to this moment, and God has brought them to this moment. Again, the text makes it repeatedly clear, these are the king's prisoners. It's the king's prison, and these prisoners were sent there specifically by the king. Why? Because God has placed Joseph in that place of difficulty for such a time as this. Friends, what is your attitude when you find yourself in places of difficulty? Where does your heart go when you spend long days and months and even years in places that you would have never chosen for yourself? Do you become angry? Do you become aggressive? Do you become sullen and distant and withdrawn? Are you just overwhelmed? And I think we've all been here. I just can't handle people today. You know what? You don't don't know how bad my life is. Just stay away from me. We don't know how long Joseph has been in this prison. And yet here's what we see. Look at verse 6. These prisoners come to him. Now, Joseph is having a bad day. And yet here's what we see. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. Oh, how often do our troubles that we are going through in the moment trump whatever anybody else is going through? I don't care what you're going through. You don't know how bad I've got it. But he saw that they were troubled, and so he asked them, Why are your face downcast today? We're not even told that they're grumbling and complaining. He was so observant of what was going on in other people that he said, Your facial expressions are telling me you're having a hard time this morning Guys, what's going on? Christian, how many times have you walked into a church service with the gathering of God's people to worship the God who saved you, but you came in on a rough morning? Maybe you came in on the tail end of a rough week or month or year, and you were oblivious to what was going on around you. Well, there's a lesson for us here in being aware of those that God has placed around us. Why? Because it may be for such a time as this. Maybe you're the person God has placed to encourage them. Maybe God is actually up to... Here's a crazy thought. The sovereign creator of the universe who's working all things together for good, maybe he accidentally knows what he's doing in this moment in your life too. Crazy thought. Here's what they say. We're disturbed by these dreams that we have had. We can't shake them, and we don't understand them. And here's what Joseph does. We're going to see this repeatedly in the text. He's going to take this idea of prophetic dreams, and he's going to point it to God. It's not about him. It's not about his abilities, how great Joseph is. He's going to say, don't the interpretations belong to God? So please tell them to me. Now, often when we read Scripture, we want to pull back and see what the author, who's Moses, Moses is writing this book, what his original intentions are for his audience, his hearers, the people to whom he is writing. And we'll do that a little bit, but I actually think it helps to remember what Joseph is going through in this moment, what he has brought to this text. Remember, God gave him these dreams, these prophetic promises of what was to come. How many of you, if you're sitting 13 years later, locked in some prison cell after God said, I'm going to bless you in this way, and what you've seen is the exact opposite, at some point go, you know what? I'm not sure, God, you're going to keep your promise. Anybody ever felt that frustration in your life of, I'm not sure God will follow through on his promise. It's not that he's not powerful enough. I'm just not sure he cares. 
And yet in this passage we're going to read together in chapter 40 and 41, we're going to get triple confirmation through prophetic dreams of the cupbearer and the baker and then the king himself that these dreams are from God, the interpretation is from God, and Jeremiah 1.12 says God is watching over his word to perform it. Oh, that's important for the Hebrews who were coming out of slavery that Moses is writing to to hear, but it's important for Joseph to hear. That's part of what's happening in this passage. God is going to convince Joseph, I can keep my promise. Verse 9, so the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph, and he said, In my dream, there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes, pressed them into Pharaoh's cup, and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation, the three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. And you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly, when you were his cupbearer. Verse 14, only remember me. I love that we see the humanity of Joseph coming through. Remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh. And so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. I want us to think for just a second about the power of suggestion in our dreams. A few years ago, my wife woke me up in the middle of the night, and she's a a very loving person, but this was not a loving wake-up call. This was a, what are you doing? And I'm like, what's wrong? What's happening? She's like, you are kicking me. Why are you kicking me? And I'm like, Like, did I roll over? No, you were violently kicking me. Well, then it occurred to me that as she woke me up out of this dream, earlier that night, we had watched the movie The Mummy. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with that movie. Uh, It's sort of a Indiana Jones type of thing, so it's really kind of a lighthearted thing. But there are these mummies chasing people around. And at one point, they're driving a car, and the mummies are trying to jump on the back of the car. I dreamed, because of the power of suggestion, that our family was in the car, and the mummies were trying to get in. And I was saving our family. And I'm like, forgive me for loving you that much. I think most of us have had those dreams at some point. Just the power of suggestion has sort of bled into our subconscious. This is not that. Verse 5 is very, very clear that each one had their own dream, and its dream had its interpretation. They weren't the same thing. They They didn't eat the same pizza and end up with weird dreams. They didn't watch the same movie and have the same basic dream. No, they're very different and specific to the individuals. In fact, we're going to see when the king has his dream that he wakes up in the middle of it just to say there's a break and right back at it, another prophetic dream from the Lord. And as we find in biblical prophecy, so often it has poetic imagery to it. Imagery we're not meant to take literally, but it is symbolic. And so we find uh, here in this first one, the three branches of the vine are three days. It's interesting, and we're not going to take time to think about this, but he, he sees the vine, immediately it grows up. Immediately after it grows up, it has grapes on it. And immediately after he takes the grapes, he pushes them into the cup and he crushes them into the cup. Friends, that's not how wine is made. It's a very long process, but in this dream, everything is happening as it were in fast forward. It's as if God is saying this is going to be very, very quick. And so the king's servant is told the king is going to lift up your head. We're going to find that phrase repeated here a couple times, so just sort of file that away in your mind. The king is going to lift up your head, says, uh, to, said to the cupbearer, and he's going to give you your job back as cupbearer to the king. Only it comes with this uh, pleading from Joseph, but remember me. This is going to happen super fast. In fact, it's going to happen in three days from now. Three days from now, remember me. It's the first time we hear Joseph plead his case. I was stolen out of my land. I am innocent of these charges. I've done nothing that they should put me in the pit. 
Well, that, that's the first dream, and it, it sort of emboldens the second guy. Look at verse 16. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, remember, both of these guys have been disturbed by these dreams. They've been shaken by these dreams. I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating it out of the basket of my head. And Joseph answered him and said, I love that he doesn't beat around the bush here. This is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. Three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat your flesh. Nice job softening the blow there, Joseph. For Pete's sakes. Again, we see the symbolism of the three baskets being the three days. So completely different dreams, but the same message. But this time, the king's servant is told, your head will be lifted up, but it will be taken from you, will be hung on a tree. And as if that wasn't bad enough, scavengers, these birds, will eat your flesh. Now watch what happens, because this, remember, this is proving in Joseph's heart and mind, as well as theirs, that the sovereign God is the giver of dreams, and he's the fulfiller of what he has promised. Kids, how many days did they say it was coming? Three days, that's right, verse 20. On the third day. Moses is specific to tell us it happened exactly as it said, which was Pharaoh's birthday. That's an interesting detail uh, to be included in there. He made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. And he restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup of Pharaoh in his hand and he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph but forgot him. K.A. Matthews in his commentary on Genesis points out that the feast of Pharaoh's birthday was possibly not his physical birthday at all. It was believed in Egyptian culture that Pharaoh was a god. This could have been his ascension to the Egyptian god Horus, who was the son of Ra. If that's the case, if our president, if our king is being declared a god... It's all hands on deck. This is a big celebration. This, this isn't just uh, a national recognition, but this is a national stop and celebrate what's happening. Every servant would have been called, even those who had been thrown into prison. And I love that as we read the text, now we read it pretty quick, but there's just a little bit of tension that gets sparked because we've already been told he's going to lift up his head from him. And Moses starts by saying he lifted up their heads together, only then he separates it, proving that what Joseph said was true, just as he had said. One was restored, verse 22, and one was executed. And yet Joseph was forgotten. The title of this sermon is Promise Kept, only up to this point it has felt like promise forgotten. All, all that he knows about this guy is he's a young Hebrew. And this cupbearer forgets him. I mean, this is fairly dramatic here, guys. Like if you're in prison and the guy next to you who's basically in for the same thing is going to get his head chopped off and three days later you get freed and restored to your position, don't you think that would lodge in your brain? Now, I'm forgetful, but I'm not that forgetful. There's something else happening here. And consider, if God wasn't sovereignly working in Joseph's story, and by the way, working in your story, this could have been the end. Joseph dies forgotten in a foreign prison, but that's not how this story ends. Look at chapter 41. We see Pharaoh's dream. We've seen the two servants' dreams, and now uh, it's this consummation in the king's dream. After two whole years, that's a rather significant scene change. Uh, last time was super fast. It was, it was three days and out of mind. Now it's been two years. This guy has forgotten. Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile, and behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. Behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, 
came up out of the Nile after them and stood with the other cows on the bank of the Nile, and the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke. In other words, this isn't just a crazy dream. What on earth did I eat before I went to bed? This isn't that. We're intentionally, in fact, we're told twice this happens, that there's a break in the middle of it. Verse 5, and he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. This is a second dream. It's not just a continuation. It just rolls on from the first one. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears, and Pharaoh awoke. Behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled. And he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them the dreams, but there was none. Mark that phrase. We're going to see that again and again. There was none. No one with an answer. No one with an interpretation. No one who knew what was going on who could interpret the dream to Pharaoh. We're told that Pharaoh was troubled in his spirit. That Hebrew word actually means to be anxious to be moved by what he saw. In fact, the word kind of has this connotation of being thrust forward into something. And just like the prisoners, he can't forget the dream. He knows it means something. He knows it came from somewhere. And so what does he do? He does what every good pagan does, and that's call all the pagan magicians, all the pagan wise men to himself. By the way, in telling us this, Moses is setting up the conflict. The conflict between the, the pagan magicians, the, the pagan people who claim to speak for their gods, and Joseph, who's going to speak for the one true and living God. That's especially close to home for Moses. If you remember, in Exodus chapter 7, uh, Moses goes in before another pharaoh. This is several hundred years later. And he says the words, let my people go. Now, kids, do you remember this? Uh, Moses and his brother Aaron go in before Pharaoh, and Moses is carrying his staff in his hand. Anybody remember what happens to his staff when he throws it on the ground? It turns into a snake, right? This This is a dramatic... Now, how often do sticks turn into snakes? Not in your imagination in real life. In, in imagination, things turn into all kinds of stuff. Like when I was a kid... Uh, we were, we were a good Mennonite family, and uh, my parents knew that good Mennonites do not play with guns, and so we weren't allowed to have toy guns when we were little. You know what every stick turned into? A gun, right. But this is not that. This isn't the imagination. This is an actual snake. This is a miracle. This is something supernatural that's happening. Only what happens? The magicians of Egypt do the same thing. That's actually kind of scary. We know that God has power. Where was their power coming from? That they could turn a stick into a snake. It's actually worse than that. Most people remember that part of the story. But the same thing happens as the the first curses begin to come against Egypt and Moses, by the power of God, turns water into blood and the Egyptian magicians do the same thing. There is a supernatural power at work. Then Moses calls out frogs out of the Nile, and frogs come up out of the Nile. And what do the magicians do? The same thing. And then Moses strikes the ground with his staff, and out of the dust of the ground come flies, come gnats that just cover everything. What do the magicians do? Nothing. They can't do it. See, there was a power more powerful than the demons that they were serving. The sovereign God was working to defend and deliver his people to confirm, let my people go. And so we read in Exodus chapter 8 that they say in verse 9, this is the finger of God. We have all our gods, but this is something different. This is the true and living God. And now in Joseph's time, the king's dream comes. We're told repeatedly there's no one. There's no one, there's no one who can interpret. Look at verse 9. Oh, God's perfect timing. Then, two years later, the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, 
I remember my offenses today. Has anybody had like an appointment? This happens to me. I, I'm, I try and be so diligent like with my calendar on my phone, set reminders, put things in there. Like, but has anybody had where you're supposed to meet somebody and then you get the phone call and they're like, where are you at? Because you forgot? How many of you felt terrible? How many of you have had that happen? Come on. Look, moment. This is for me. This is counseling for me. Good. How many of you felt terrible when that happened? What's it like two years later when you forgot the dude who got you out in prison? I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servant and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. And a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation for each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. He was right. What he said actually happened, and I was restored to my office, and Bob the baker was hanged. I don't know that his name was Bob, but that'd be kind of awesome, I think. I mean, a few years ago, I got to know, yeah, sorry, Bob. I got to know a precious brother in the Lord named Dr. Jim Schaefer. I, I knew him sort of in the twilight of his years. He was a pastor. He was a psychologist. And he told me about the weight of meeting with people, of, of counseling people, and hearing the deepest, darkest struggles that people had and how it weighed on his own soul. And so he prayed, God, let me forget. And it worked. It worked. It's one of those prayers that you pray that works a little too well. He couldn't remember anything by the time I met him. Like, he'd, it, him and I led a small group together, and every time I'd talk to him, he would stumble over my name, uh, uh, Matt, right? Uh, there was a forgetfulness that set in, only in talking with him, he said, it is God's grace because I can talk with people and then I can just forget. It was a divine forgetfulness. Well, I don't think it's the exact same thing, but the cupbearer has divine forgetfulness. You don't forget your redemption out of prison three days later. You don't forget it for two years, and then at exactly the right moment, in exactly the right situation, in a conversation that you just happen to be there for, all of a sudden the whole thing just comes flooding back. No, this is a divine forgetfulness and a divine remembrance. It's no coincidence that he now remembers. Why? Because God has done this. Think about it with me. What happened if he remembered three days later? Joseph? Nothing. Thank you. Joseph gets released from prison. Does Joseph go back to Potiphar's house where he was accused of attempting to rape his wife? Absolutely not. He's either sold or set free. Right? If he's exonerated, he's probably going to get set free. If he's set free, does he stay in Egypt where he has no one, or does he go home to Canaan with his family? In other words, there's no salvation for what's to come. There's no answer for Pharaoh's dream. And when the famine comes, there's no one there to save. What happens is nothing. It's especially bad because what does the cupbearer remember of him? We read it a second ago. A young Hebrew. We're not even told that he remembers his name or where he's from. He just knew the guy he'd been working for and how he ended up there. He would have been gone. They would have never found him. But God had him exactly where he wanted him. Friends, that's easy for us to say about Joseph because we're not sitting in his prison. And yet I would say the same is true for you. Whatever difficult place God has placed you in, he's placed you there. He is good and you can trust him. Look at verse 14. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph and they quickly brought him out of the pit. There's two words in there I want you to really latch on to quickly and pit. Nothing about this story has been quick up to this point. And yet we find this is true. Isaiah 38, 17, Behold, it was for my welfare. This is the fill in the blank for you. It was for my welfare that I had great bitterness. But in love, speaking of God, you have delivered my life from the pit. Of destruction. This was a dark and difficult place, and God had placed him there in love. 
God's hand was working for his own good, for his own welfare. And I love that we're told it happened quickly because nothing else in this story has happened quickly at all. And now all of a sudden, everything seems to be happening at once. We find this reference to the pit and God's faithfulness again. Psalm 103, verse 2 through 4. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget not all his benefits. Oh, how you and I have a tendency to forget. God is good and God is faithful. God has saved and delivered and we forget. Forget not all of his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquities? Who heals all your diseases? Who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you, correct answer, with steadfast love and mercy. Remember, everything up to this point in his life has been a mixture of pain and God's faithfulness. Genesis 39, 21, the Lord was with Joseph and showed him a steadfast love. And yet God's steadfast love was not about getting him out of prison. Christian, you need to hear this. God's steadfast love was not about getting him out of slavery. Those make great worship songs. It's all about uh, God delivering us out of slavery. God setting us free from one thing or another. And God does that for his people. But God was accomplishing his purpose. And his purpose, at least for 13 years, was not Joseph's convenience. Look at verse 14. Comes out of prison. When he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream and there's no one who can interpret it. Again, there's no one. I heard it said of you that you, when you hear a dream, can interpret it. And Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not me. Points again to God. God will give Pharaoh the favorable answer. By the way, it's not the magicians either. They have no answers. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I saw standing on the bank of the Nile seven cows, plump and attractive. They came up out of the Nile. They fed on the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in the land of Egypt. The thin, ugly cows ate up the first of the seven plump cows, and when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still ugly as at the beginning. And then I awoke." The second time we're told, uh, chapter 41, verse 4, that he woke up in the middle. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full full and good. Seven ears withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind sprouted after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told the magicians, but there was no one. This is the third time we've heard that who could explain it to me. It's important Because when you think about the context in which they're speaking in in Egyptian history, Encyclopedia Britannica says over the course of Egyptian history, there were hundreds of gods and goddesses that they worshipped. Everything from the Nile to fertility uh, to plants bearing fruit, there, there were gods that they would call on for all of these things, only no one had an answer for them. Well, why do we care? I mean, we know there's only one true God, so what's the big deal? What's the big deal if some pagan king long ago got this right? Well, it's because these gods that the magicians served actually had power. Not because they were divine, but because 1 Corinthians 10.20 says, No, the sacrifices of pagans were offered to demons, not to God. This is a display of demonic power in the world, masquerading, attempting to take the place of the one true God. You're going to find that again, and I put these in the bulletin for you in the list of scriptures that are in there. Deuteronomy 32, 17, Psalm 106, 37, and Leviticus 17, 7. If you just circle all four of those, 1 Corinthians 10 down to Leviticus 17, it will remind you all of those are going to say, these other gods are not just made up things, but they are demonic powers. That's why when God delivers his people and brought them out of Egypt and he brought the plagues on Egypt, each one of them was a public humiliation and emasculation of the Egyptian gods. They were displayed as powerless. Verse 25, then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh, the two dreams you've had are one. And it wasn't wasn't pizza that you ate 
God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he's about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout the land of Egypt. But after them, there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. Verse 32, and the doubling of Pharaoh's dream. In other words, God said it twice. Means that these things are fixed by God. You're not, you're not changing this, oh, weak man, even though you are king. And God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land to take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven years of plenty. Let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve in the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish in the famine. Joseph said, here's the interpretation. There are going to be seven long years of famine sent by God. But before they arrive, God is sending, sending seven years of plenty for you to store up. Verse 33 this slave, this prisoner, commands the king. Gives him an imperative. You must do this. Uh, this guy was in prison this morning. This guy was unshaved and unwashed this morning. No, this isn't Joseph's command. This is God's command. Appoint overseers. By the way, here's where the libertarians among us uh, make their brains explode. Did, did you catch this? Isn't it funny how we read scripture through the lens of Democrat and Republican and forget that God is king? Good. Appoint overseers. By the way, I, I should say this after I, after I politicize this. Uh, I, I'm not in favor of us just doing this across the board, but God is king. It was God who was, well, was the king of Egypt a Christian or an unbeliever? He's an unbeliever. And yet God bends the wills of nations and kings. He says, take one-fifth of the nation's produce, not knock on their door and ask them if they think it's a good, like explain it. Listen, we got seven years of plenty and then we got seven years coming rough. How do you feel about participating in, in a national program to store? No, take it. Take one-fifth, let the government keep it as a federal reserve. Not, let the, not tell the people it's coming, therefore store it up for yourself. No, government, take it government, hold on to it. This makes me a little nervous. <laughs> Look at the person next to you and say, it's all right, this was God. Good, good talk, good talk. It's going to work. <laughs> the government is holding on to it, but here's the promise that God gives. We're doing this so that the land may not perish in the famine. This is the moment that all of Joseph's life has been building towards. Verse 8 tells us that Pharaoh has this dream and is troubled. Even before Joseph gets there, he's looking for answers. And by the way, verse 38 is the central pinpoint of all of Joseph's life. Verse 37 says, this proposal pleased Pharaoh. Pharaoh was troubled, and now he hears the interpretation, he hears seven years of famine, devastating famine are coming, but there's a plan that God has given, and therefore he is pleased. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants, but here it comes. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? What has he been saying up to this point? There's no one. There's no one. There's no one. And now he looks at Joseph and says, you're the one. You're the man. This is what the dreams that God had given to Joseph as a kid were pointing to. 
The same presence of God, the same blessing that Potiphar saw in Genesis 39 verse 3, that the jailer saw in Genesis 39 verse 23, that his brothers failed to see, but they will, the king now clearly sees. Verse 39, then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, listen to how he turns it, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. There's something about you. There's something about your God. You're the one. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regard to the throne will I be greater than you. Remember in Potiphar's house, he said, I've kept nothing back for you except my wife. And now Pharaoh says, I've kept nothing back from you in the entire nation, the most powerful nation on earth at the time except the throne. Pharaoh said to Joseph, verse 41, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand, and he put it on Joseph's hand, and he clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain on his neck. Friends, this is a complete reversal. Remember we said in chapter 38 and 39 that Moses is putting Judah and Joseph side by side. What happens to Judah at the end of 38? His signet is taken from him. His belt is taken from him. And his staff is taken from him. And Judah says, we better leave it alone or we're going to be laughed at. Now these things are given to Joseph, but instead of being laughed at, look at verse, verse 43. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And as Joseph is riding through the streets, people are not laughing at him. They set people to call out before him, bow your knee. Thus he ruled over all the land of Egypt. So kids, if you remember when God gave Joseph dreams, what were the dreams about? What kept happening in the dreams? Everybody kept bowing down to Joseph. And now we're not even left to recognize it on our own and go, oh yeah, this guy's pretty great. Pharaoh, the king, sends people out in front of him to demand, bow your knee to Joseph, just as God had promised. Verse 44, moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphoneth, Paneah, and he gave him in marriage Aseneth, the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On. And so Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt. That, that name that he gives him literally means the God speaks and he lives. Every time he says his name, he's reminded that God speaks and therefore he lives. Well, he's not only Lord over all of Egypt, he's also Lord over his family, but they won't know it for nine years yet. When all this started, Joseph was just 17, we're told in Genesis 37, verse 2. And it's been a rough 13 years. Things have not gone the way he anticipated. Look at verse 46. Joseph was 30 years old. When he entered the service of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh went throughout all of the land. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food for these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, put the food in the cities. And he put in every city the food from its field around it. And Joseph stored up the grain in great abundance. Look at this language that's here. Like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. That's the language that's reminiscent of the covenant promises that God gave to Abraham. Genesis 22, verse 17, I will surely bless you. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and in the sand of the seashore. Verse 50, before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Aseneth, the daughter of Potiphar, the priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For, he said, God has made me forget divine forgetfulness in the grace of God. And all my father's house, all, all, the, all the pain that was there, all the hardship that was there. In the name of the second, he called Ephraim, for he said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. There's been a forgetfulness and there's been a fruitfulness. 
The seven years of plenty occurred in the land of Egypt, and they came to an end, and the seven years of famine began. As Joseph had said, there was famine in all the land, but in the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread, and Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. Whatever he says, do. Part of the years of blessing included two sons that were born to Joseph, Manasseh and Ephraim. Born to a woman that we give her name as Aseneth, the daughter of a demon-worshipping priest of an Egyptian god. Talk about redemption. We've seen other people in God's family choose to go outside of God's family in marriage, and yet here we have the king imposing it upon him. And what does God do? He redeems it in a ridiculous way. God is working behind the scenes even in this life situation. Here's the last fill in the blank for you. We can believe in our hearts that God's plan is perfect, that God's timing is perfect, and that his purposes will stand. That's true. And yet it's also so easy to forget. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Sometimes it feels like he is. Sometimes we look and say, God, if you were truly good, if you were truly in control, you wouldn't allow this, happen, this to happen. But the scripture says the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. In other words, you've got your timing wrong. But he's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Friends, this story really is the story of a promise kept. For God's people, it is the promise of salvation. We see that with the cupbearer. We see that with the land of Egypt being saved. But for those who reject him, oh, it's the promise of coming judgment. We know sin has broken our world. Sin has broken our lives. Even our hearts and our heart's desires have been bent and broken by sin. We don't even know what the right thing is to want anymore. And maybe your life feels so bent and so broken that you feel trapped in the pit. Now, here's the danger. We don't want to look at our lives and say, you're Joseph, and therefore you must do this and this. Be faithful, and God's going to make it all turn around, and it's going to be super awesome. I think there's a greater one than you being Joseph that you can look to, and that is Jesus is the greater Joseph. And yet you, like Joseph, are called to be faithful even in the middle of adversity. God has brought you here. And the God who brought you here is good. Psalm 119, verse 68, the psalmist declares, God, you are good, and you do good. All that he does is good. And therefore, weary Christian, lift up your eyes in hope. Not to yourself, that if you do things right, if you really turn things around, well, well, things will go in a good direction and you'll have a good life. No, knowing that our hope and trust is in the God who came in our place. Knowing, Proverbs 19.21, that many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it's the purpose of the Lord that will stand. We would say, God, this is not my plan, it's not my purpose, and God says, I'm still right on track. Maybe it hasn't felt good, but God is bending it towards good. And friends, when you haven't seen God's timing, and maybe in the midst of that, you have forgotten of his sovereign love and care for you, Maybe it's gone past that and you've been tempted to actively sin against God by accusing him of wrongdoing. Here's the call this morning. Repent of sin and trust in God again. There are so many who hold a grudge against God for things that happened years ago and they didn't happen as they had planned or pleased and yet the sovereign God was not off track for one moment. You may feel forgotten in the prison, but consider Christ forgotten by man upon the cross, crying out, using the words of Psalm 22. We find this in Matthew 27. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet he was not forsaken. That was an expression of the human emotion that echoes within our own heart. Christian, you're not forsaken in your life, even though it may 
feel like it because we read through the rest of Psalm 22, beginning in verse 1, why are you so far from me? From the words of my groaning. Oh God, I cry by day, but you don't answer. By night, and I find no rest. Friends, how many times have you felt like that? God, how, how could you have forsaken me? It feels like you're not listening. It, listen, it feels like you're not here and that you don't care. Yet verse 11 says, Be not far from me, for trouble is near. Hear this language, and there's no one to help. Well, this is a setup of the same conflict that we saw in Joseph. Every other help, every other comfort that we find in the world is empty when we get there. And yet, here is the promise, Psalm 22, verse 24, For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard. When he cried to him. Friends, I know some of your stories. I know there have been long nights where you cried out to God, God, why am I here? God, why is it going like this? Oh God, stretch out your hand to save. Don't ignore me. And here's the reminder, he has heard and he has not forgotten you in your affliction. And here's what he says, from you comes my praise. In the great congregation, my vows I will perform before those who fear you. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. God, it feels like you've forgotten me in this moment. But I'm reminded that you are king of the nations and that you hold all things. What a beautiful echo of the salvation that comes to the nations through Joseph here. And yet Jesus is the greater Joseph. He is not at the mercy of some king who has to lift him out of the pit, who has to set him in the position of power. Jesus is the king of the nations. Here's the truth of the gospel. He has fully paid for your sin's debt. On the cross, he did all the work to save you that you couldn't accomplish, and therefore, repent of your sin. Not repent because you're terrible and God hates you. Repent because God has gone to such great lengths to save you. Stop bowing down in prideful worship before your sin. Our world has dedicated this month to bowing down in prideful worship before their sin. Christian, God commands you, bow before him. It's not a suggestion. It's not a good idea. It's not one option among many Acts 17, verse 30 says this, God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier time, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sin and turn to him. Is it because God hates you? Is it because God is against you? No, it's because our God is gracious and has done all the work to save you. Worship team, if you come and join me. One of the things as we were talking this morning in one of the small groups in the adult Sunday school, I was so struck with how many times we look at God's grace and mercy and then we, we act and react to it like God just decided to be nice. Like there's two options in the world. Uh, we've sinned and God can either be harsh with us or he can be nice to us. Be nice and say, well, I, I know you're just, you're just man, you're just frail, and therefore, I'm, I'm going to be nice. I'm going to overlook it today. You need Christian and non-Christian, you need to hear me alike really clearly. God has never chosen to be nice to anyone. Everyone's sin will be fully paid for. The scripture says that the penalty for our sin, the wages of our sin, is death. Our sin is against the holy, perfect, righteous God, the king of all the universe. Therefore, it is a sin that demands justice and penalty. And God hasn't chosen to be nice to you. Where he should have killed you for your sin, he killed his son. This is not God being nice. This is God being just. But that justice has come to you in mercy. He killed his son. 
He punished His Son for your sin and mine. And therefore, in those dark moments of the soul, in those nights that we cry out, God, am I forgotten? His word and the gospel screams, you are not forgotten, you are loved. Oh, church, may we cling to that in our deepest, darkest moments. Not that we cling that we are Joseph, we're going to do everything right, and God's going to turn it around. We say we have a better Savior, and our Savior is King. Let's stand together. So we come to the table of the Lord. I, I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to point you to the family worship that's in the bulletin. Please spend some time as your family today going through that. But as we come to the table, I, I want us to just sit in that tension. That we live in a world that feels really, really broken most of the time to us. Our sin, the sin of the world around us, a, a world that we look at and say it is not as it ought to be. And yet to be reminded that our God holds it in the palm of his hand right now. You, right now. Your family, right now. This nation, this world, right now. And So for those who put their hope in Christ, come to the table and be reminded that his body was broken instead of yours. That his blood was shed instead of yours, only his blood isn't like you and I would have been, just somebody paying for their crime. His was perfection, and so what we are given is his righteousness instead of our filthy rags. Therefore, we trust him. In 1675, a German pastor named Samuel Rodegast, standing upon that hope, penned these words. Whatever my God ordains is right. Friends, you've walked through some really tough places in the last couple of years. Every single thing God ordained for your life was right. He's bending it for good. We believe that, and so he says, Here shall my stand be taken. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, yet I am not forsaken. My Father's care is around me there, and He holds me that I shall not fall. And so to Him I leave it all. Father, we trust in You where we have found ourselves in long, dark, painful places in our life. We don't look as a remedy that one day things are going to turn around. For many, they don't. For many, the road you have called them to walk is a difficult, winding road filled with pain and loss and cancer. But for one second, we were never forsaken. For one second, we were never outside of your sovereign, loving hand. And we say with the psalmist that you are good, and all you do is good. You, O God, are our only hope. Not that this world turns around. That's coming. There will come a day when there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Until that day, we say, we lift our eyes in hope, and we trust you, O God. When loved ones are lost, we trust you, O God. When families and fortunes fail, we trust you, O God. We look to you, and we have no other. Now, friends, let us confess our hope in that one true God in the Nicene Creed. It will be on the screen. It will be in your bulletin. We believe in one God the Father, the Almighty. He's the maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father. He's God from God, light from light, true God from true God, 
begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary. He was made man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. But on the third day he rose again in accordance with the scripture. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead. Amen. May it be so, O oh God. There's thousands of Christians confessing that this morning. Thousands of Christians, even in unfaithful churches, who say that's what their hearts believe. But we beg you, O oh God, make us believe it. Yes. Convince us by your word and your spirit that we can trust you. Convince us again that you alone are Savior. Church, come to the table as we sing. Thanks for joining our podcast. We pray that God would bless you and strengthen you through his word. If you'd like to find out more about EWC or give tithes and offerings in support of this ministry, visit our website at edenworshipcenter.co.